We've been, uh, I'm Greg Boyd, I'm senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. This is our teaching time. We like to just zero in on the Word of God and, and uh, just dig into it and learn from it and be transformed by it. We've been talking about prayer. Uh, the last 10, 11, 12 weeks, we've been dealing mainly with warfare prayer or kingdom building kind of prayer. This morning I'm going to talk about a different kind of prayer. One that's uh, as important, in fact, in some ways it's more important than all the other kind of prayer we've been talking about. But to do this and have it of any kingdom value, we need to surround it with prayer. So I need about ten people over here while I'm preaching to be praying for me. Would you raise your hand if you'll be willing to do that? Just raise your hand. I need come on. I need some more people here. You guys are willing, but I need I need a little few. I want the whole room covered. Okay, good. You can listen to the message, but just be sprinkling it in, be doing intercessory work during the prayer, and also during the work during the prayer, and also during the worship time. In the middle here, are about twenty people. Okay, praise God. Gotcha. And then over on the left hand here, 10, 15 people. Good. Just cover this with prayer. Because what we know is that the kingdom isn't built by words, by eloquent speech or anything like that. It's built by the Spirit of God. Amen? The Spirit of God using what we do to build His kingdom. So let's pray. Father, we commit this time to You, Lord. I pray, God, that You give us focus and attention. Lord, to attend to uh, the, the subject matter here. Lord, most importantly, we pray that your Holy Spirit right here and right now in Jesus' name would descend upon us. Lord, fill this auditorium with your presence, Lord, and your power. Lord God, cultivate our minds and hearts to receive your word, Lord, and use it, God, to instruct us, to change us, to motivate us to be the kingdom people you've called us to be, Lord. We do it for your glory, for your namesake. We trust in you and not in human words or in song, Lord. Do what only you can do. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Father, I pray that by the end of this meeting they would know you, Lord. That they'd surrender their life to you. And Lord God, for all of us, I pray, Lord, that we'd be changed and would leave here a little different than we came here, Lord God. More sold out, more abandoned, more radically discipled by you, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to be talking about something called that can be called the Sabbath prayer. And to get into it, I want to read from Genesis chapter 1. And a little verse from Genesis chapter 2. The Lord says this, God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Men and women are made in the image of God. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. In Genesis 2, we see this process starting as the Lord puts Adam in charge of the Garden of Eden. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. What we see here is this, that right from the beginning, when God created human beings, He gave them a job. He gave us a task. The task is to have dominion over the world, to subdue the world, to guard it, to to till it, to keep it. God could have created a world where He was unilaterally in charge of everything, where He did everything Himself. But because He's a God of love and He created the world for the purpose of love, He wants to use mediators to carry out His will. And the job of human beings is to do that on the earth, to align our will with His will and to carry out His will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as you know, as many of you know anyways, uh, right from the very beginning, we unfortunately did not choose to align our will with God's will. We surrendered our authority over to the devil. 
And that is why now Satan is said to have control of the entire world. He has the dominion of the world that human beings were supposed to have. The Lord became a man. He was incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ primarily to end this uh, reign of, of Satan. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the Son of God has appeared to destroy the devil and his works. And so the Lord came down into this world to defeat the devil, to free human beings from the, from the bondage of, of, of the devil, and to repower us to do the work that He originally commanded us to do. The church consists of all those who are the restored humanity. And we now carry out the job that God has given to us to carry out. Through prayer and through what we do and through what we say, we are once again having dominion over the world. The job for the, for the church is to, through the power of God, to reclaim the earth as belonging to God. Amen? And prayer is one of the main ways that we do that. We've seen that the last 10, 11, 12 weeks, that prayer is our spiritual say-so. It is... It is the God-ordained means by which the kingdom of God is built on earth as it is in heaven. That's why the, the Lord says in Matthew 16, the first word about the church is that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We subdue everything that resists God in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the job description of the church. That's our vocation. Every one of us is called to be a minister. We have a niche in the kingdom of God that we're to carry out. Now, if that was all you knew about Christianity... If you were introduced to Christ 10 weeks ago and you've been here for this 10-week series, you might come away with the impression that Christianity is all about a job. You might come away with the impression that prayer is all about asking God for things. Prayer is all about doing warfare and spreading the kingdom of God and, and, and that sort of thing. And prayer is about that, and Christianity is a vocation, for sure. It's a vocation that's urgent. We've stressed that over and over and over again. But you'd really be mistaken if you thought that that was all that Christianity was about. And if, and if you thought that's all that prayer was about. As we're going to see, that is not all that it's about. That's not even primarily what it's about. It's not even primarily what it's about. Human beings weren't just created to do a job. We are created to have fellowship with God. Look at a couple of things from Genesis that really highlight this. Genesis chapter 1. I want, I, want to know, I want you to notice three things here in the Genesis narrative that indicates to us that we weren't just created for a job. The job is important. It's what makes our life meaningful. There's things that we are to do. But there's also some things that we are to be apart from our doing. It says this, that uh, point number one. We are made, notice this, we're made in the image of God before we're commanded to do anything. We are made in the image of God. Our worth and our value is found in how God created us, not in what we do. God made us in His image. We reflect in our own small way the glory of God. That's our worth. That's our value. God commands human beings to have dominion over the world on the basis of who we already are. He doesn't tell us to have dominion uh, over the world in order to become something. We don't earn the badge image of God. We get it for free. And once we get it for free, then we carry out uh, what, what, what is implied by being in the image of God. We do in a small way what God does in a big way. He's God of the whole universe. He wants to be God over the, over the earth, but He wants to do it through us. We're in the image of God because we apply on earth the will of God as it is in heaven. But we have the image of Godness, if you will, before we do anything. Number two, look at this. 
It says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. That's just in the evening time when, when uh, the work was done, in the evening time when things were cool, the Lord would come down and fellowship with them. In this passage, He's looking for Adam and Eve. He comes down to walk with them in the cool of the day, but they're hiding. And so He says, where are you? This is our time to meet together. What you see from this passage is, is this, that the Lord created us not just to till the garden. It's not that He needed a gardener. He has a job for us for sure. But even more fundamentally, God created us to have fellowship with us. He wants to walk with us in the cool of the day. Uh, he wants to pour His love into us. And He wants us to embody His love for one another. And He wants us to reflect back His love to, to Him. We see this in John 17. The purpose for which God created the world was to manifest His triune love. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wants us to receive His love to reflect His love towards one another, and to give back His love to Him. That's the primary reason why we're created. Now, out of that comes a lot of doing. But what we need to know is that that's not based on our doing. That's based on our being. It's based on how and why God created us. He wants to walk with us. The Almighty God... It just hits me sometimes. The Almighty God wants to fellowship with us. Just to have this loving relationship with us. To walk, to hang in the cool of the day. Look at this third feature of, of the Genesis narrative. The Lord set aside the seventh day, and He hallowed it. This was to be a day of rest. God rested after His work, and so He tells us to rest after our work. The Lord sets aside a time, and in the Old Testament, He guarded it very carefully, that there's a time where we stop working. And the purpose of that is that He wants to always remind us that we're finite beings and our identity is not to be found in what we do. There needs to be a time. Yes, there's a lot to do. There's important stuff to do. But there needs to be a time, a regular discipline time that we set apart where we bracket the issues of life and where we just are. We're human beings, not human doings. And so there needs to be a time in our life where we just rest, where we just enjoy being who we are. It's what some call the Sabbath principle. I want to talk a little bit about the Sabbath principle and that will get us into the Sabbath prayer. You see the Sabbath principle everywhere in the world. Everything needs rest. There's a time to work and then there's a time to cease from work. We know this in our physical bodies. At least part of your life has to be spent in sleep. Downtime. The mind shuts down. You need some sleep. There's a time to be awake and there's a time to work and a time to apply yourself, but then there's a time to sleep. And sometimes we in this kind of hyper work ethic environment that we are in, we think that we can do more by cutting that out of our schedule. We think you can do more by, by you know, bringing the candle at both ends. But every study shows, and maybe your own experience has testified, that you end up doing less by trying to do more. You've got to honor the Sabbath principle. There's a time you need to sleep. Now, we don't all sleep the same amount. Some people need ten hours a night. Some people need three hours a night. But you need those hours. My wife is always a little jealous of me because I need about half the amount of sleep that she needs. But when she tries to compete with me on that, it's not happy. <laughs> Honey, you need more sleep. You know, when you don't get the sleep that your body needs, whatever amount that may be, and don't kid yourself on this, you know how much your body needs. You start to get ornery. You start to get hot-tempered, you know, uh, you start to get stressed out. You need that sleep. Don't try to fight the Sabbath principle. You need it. Schedule it in. 
We didn't know this in exercise. I'm, I'm uh, training for this marathon with my daughter after 10 years of retirement from running. She's got me back into this. And uh, what I know from experience is this. You can work hard, really push yourself, and, and, and just go to the max on one day in training. But you better take the next day off, or at least go very, very light. In fact, if you're over 40, you better take the next three days off. Uh, if you try to, there's a thing that I, I used to call runner's greed, where you think, oh man, if I can just fit in a couple more hard workouts, you know, and don't take these lazy days off, then I can really get in better shape. But you end up doing less by trying to do more. Your body starts to break down. You end up getting fatigued. You end up starting to hate running if you don't honor the Sabbath principle and give yourself rest. In fact, we know this in exercise, whether it's bodybuilding or running or whatever, that the growth comes not while you're working out, but when you're resting from working out. We sometimes think of rest as, as the collapse that happens after you, you uh, run. But it's not. The rest is what enables you to run or enables you to work out or enables you to live. Sleep isn't an accessory, a sort of footnote to life. It's the foundation for life. And taking a break from uh, your exercise is what enables you to then improve and go on with other exercise. Don't violate the Sabbath principle. We know this psychologically. Psychologically, you can deal with stress for a time, and then you've got to take a break from the stress. I uh, heard a person speaking on this several weeks ago on the radio, and he said this. In every hour, if you're in a stressful environment, and a lot of workplaces and a lot of houses are stressful environments, give yourself a five-minute Sabbath every hour. You just got to lock yourself in the bathroom if you have to, but uh, uh, you need downtime where you just don't think about it. And every day you need a couple hours where you don't think about it. You take a break from it. And every week you need a day where you don't think about it. You put it on bay. You just spend time being apart from the issues. And when we don't do that, when we don't honor the Sabbath principle, weird stuff starts to happen to our noggin, doesn't it? You think you do more by... We have this kind of try-harder syndrome in, in America where we think that if we just apply ourselves more and more vigorously focus on an issue, we'll solve it. But as a matter of fact, you can over-focus on things, you can overwork on things, and you end up doing less by trying to do more. You start to get edgy, you start to lose your creativity, you start to get tired, you start to get neurotic and crazy and hear voices in your head if you don't take a break from the, stray, from, from, from the stress. Honor the Sabbath principle. You see this in relationships all over the place. Relationships need us to, to incarnate the Sabbath principle. Ask yourself this question. Maybe some of you have been asking yourself this question. Why do people get married? Why do people get married? Well, minimally, I hope, that you got married because you enjoyed being around the person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you enjoy being together. You'd at least rather be together. You enjoy being together more than you enjoy being apart. So you say, listen, let's be together for our whole life. You enjoy being together. You enjoy the love and the, the fun times you have together. You don't marry the person just because of they're good at doing a certain task. They maybe are or maybe aren't, but you marry them not to do the task, but because you like to be together. But you know life. I know life. You get married and kids come along. God bless us for kids. The Bible says, blessed is the person whose quiver is full of children. I think I meant to say that when your house is full of children, you're going to quiver. But, uh, you know, praise God. 
like kids come along with kids comes issues and there's a lot of doing there's a lot of doing there there's a lot of work that has to be you know uh negotiated who's going to change the diapers and 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 then the kids turn into teenagers and then you've got real big issues you got to deal with you know a lot of doing that has to take place and there's a lot of issues in life you know you got to pay the bills you know you got to got to fend off the creditors you got to deal with the bounce check you know you got to make the mortgage payments you got to do the house repairs you got to do the lawn who's going to pick up the laundry and and all those sorts of things issues 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 Dealing with the in-laws, issues. And see, if you're not careful, if you're not careful, if you don't honor the Sabbath principle in your relationship, your whole relationship turns into a doing relationship. You become sort of just cohabitants in a house who are raising kids together and paying bills together. And that's not a marriage. You need to raise kids and pay bills together and work out issues together, yes. But you didn't get married so that you'd have a partner to pay bills. You got married because you wanted to be together. And there has to be, has got to be a time in your marriage, if your marriage is going to work, where you just honor the Sabbath, where you block out the issues, where you put everything on hold, you put like an ironclad parentheses around all the issues of life, around the kids, around the job, around the finances, around the lawn, around everything. And you say, let's just spend some time together. There's got to be a time in your marriage. I'm talking about marriage here, folks where you just sometimes say, let's go out for tonight. Let's just forget about the credit cards. Let's just forget about the checks. Let's just go someplace that we can't afford. Let's wine and dine and dance and party together and just do what we got married to do. Enjoy one another. And then when you come home from your partying, there's a time where you got to put on some candlelights and some soft music and set the mood. And you look into one another, another's eyes and you just be together. You got married for being, not doing. You didn't marry the person because they'd be good at raising kids or mow the lawn right or fix the house right. My wife certainly didn't marry me for that last reason. You got married for the being, not the doing. Now, out of the being will come a lot of doing, but never let the doing swallow up the being. When you find that your married life is all about doing stuff together, it's just sort of a practical, utilitarian arrangement, you know what happens? You start getting fatigued in your marriage. You start getting tired. And all the issues that inevitably come up, there's always conflict in marriage, you stop having the motivation to work through them. You see? This is more trouble than it's worth. And the reason it feels like that is because the worth is found not in the doing, but in the being. And see, if you have those times where you just put it all on hold, you hang it up for a little bit, and you spend time together, well, then you remind yourself what it's all about. No wonder we're working through all the issues we have. Because it's worth it. Because we're here together. And here's where you say words to one another that don't just serve a a different purpose. Like pick up the the, the laundry or mow the lawn or fix whatever. Here you say words like, I love you. I love you. You mean so much to me. I'm so glad I married you. I enjoy being with you. And you say it over and over and over again because the purpose isn't to convey information. The purpose is to ascribe worth. The worth of being, not doing. It's the same thing with kids. Parents, perk up. With kids, you know how it is. There's always doing issues. Are you cleaning up your room? Are you getting good grades? Are you staying out of trouble? There's always doing stuff, especially when they turn 12. Or 13, there's always doing issues. But if you're not careful, your whole relationship to your child can degenerate into a doing relationship. They relate to you and you relate to them simply on the basis of what they're doing or what they're not doing, what they should be doing, what they could be doing, what they would be doing if they weren't getting into trouble and so on and so on. 
There's got to be a time, parents, where you build into the relationship hang time, down time, Sabbath time, where you walk together in the cool of the day. We just hang out down by the kitchen and just gab a little bit. We watch a meaningless show where you go on vacation or play a board game or whatever. And you bracket the issues. You put them aside. You're not going to bring them up. They're there. For sure they're there. But this isn't the time to talk about it. The kid needs to know that their worth is found in their being your child, not in what they do or don't do. And you communicate that worth not by affirming their doing or confronting their doing, but by affirming their being. It's the Sabbath principle. It applies to every area of life. And it applies to our relationship with God. See, Christianity is a vocation, that's for sure. Every one of us who are believers are a minister. The job of pastors isn't to do the ministry of the church. The job of pastors, or rather their ministry, is equipping others to do the ministry. All of us are priests of the Most High God. All of us who are believers are ministers. There's a niche of the kingdom that God wants you to do. It's it's your vocation. When you become a believer, that's not just fire insurance. That's not just your ticket to heaven. You've signed up in the army. Amen? You've, You've joined a task force. There's a lot to do, and it's important that we do it. God relies on us to carry out His will on earth as it is in heaven. And you need to pray about what your job description is, whether it's being a greeter or, or whether it's going on, on random acts of kindness on Saturdays or prayer warrior or whatever. But all of us have a niche to do. But see, if you're not careful, your whole Christianity can become a doing relationship with God. The doing, the task, the jobs define your relationship with God. They define everything that you are about. What we need to remember is this. God didn't save you because you'd be a good greeter. Thank God you're a good greeter. If that's your ministry, you have the ministry of hospitality, you really know how to make people feel welcome, then get involved in that and do it with passion. But God didn't save you because you needed a greeter at Woodland Hills Church. God didn't save you because you needed a prayer warrior at Woodland Hills Church or whatever church you may be going to. God didn't save you because you'd be good at random acts of kindness or that you go to the Philippines. God saved you because He loves you. He's passionately in love with you. He wants to be with you. Jesus died on the cross. He shed His blood not to get greeters, but to get people who reflect His image, praise God, who know His love, who receive His love, who embody His love, who extend His love to to others. He, He saved you because of your being, not because of your doing. Now, when you understand that, there's a lot of doing that takes place. But you can't put the... The, the, the engine before the caboose. The engine is your being. The caboose is your doing. And there needs to be time in our relationship with God where we just spend time getting our being, Sabbath rest, walking with God in the cool of the day. Time where we just fellowship with God. This is the Sabbath prayer where we communicate to God not about the problems of the world, not about the problems in our life, not about the things that need to be done. We communicate to God things like this. I love you. And we hear God say to us, I love you. And we just enjoy being who God saved us to be. If we're not careful, our whole relationship with God can become a doing sort of a thing. For some people, it's work. They think of God primarily as an employer. And they're their employee. And they're always concentrated on what they're doing. Uh, am I reading the Bible enough? You know, I, I, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to read the Bible. True. Uh, I'm supposed to be witnessing. True. I'm supposed to be involved in the church. True. I'm supposed to be praying. True. And, and their, their whole relationship is about a doing sort of a thing. Am I working enough for God? 
And there is that dimension in our walk with God, but it shouldn't define us to the core. If it defines you to the core, if your whole relationship with God is about asking Him for things and and working for Him, in time you begin to get fatigued. You begin to get tired. You begin to lose joy in, in, in your walk with God. And because the need in your heart is an infinite need, you are created with an incredible vacuum in your, in, your, in your spirit that wants to be loved unconditionally. Because that need is infinite, if you're trying to meet that need and find fulfillment and joy and esteem by what you think you're doing for God, you'll never do enough. You'll never do enough. But if you're under this deception, then you think that if only you did a little bit more of this and if only you did a little bit more of that, then you'd be full. But you never get around to it. There's got to be a time where you just bracket the issues, bracket what you think you do for God, and just sit and get okay for free. Get His love for free. Receive His grace for free. Are you okay? Is your identity, is your worth settled by just sitting? Can you be okay just sitting in the presence of God and knowing that you're fulfilled and receiving that fulfillment? Or do you, are you addicted to doing? Do you always need to be doing something to feel okay before God? That's a good indication that your relationship, that the doing has swallowed up the being. There's got to be a Sabbath time of prayer with God where we just be and let God be and let Him love us and we love Him back and we walk with God in the cool of the day. Other people, their whole Christianity is defined by issues. Issue people. Maybe it's personal issues. Some people, their whole walk with God is about solving their own issues. You know, they're trying to work through issues of, of when they were kids and, and they weren't raised right and now they wonder about why dad did this and mom did this and, and, and so they're always about issues and always asking, God, help me through these issues. Or maybe they got issues of, they got phobias that they got to take care of or they got compulsive things they got to take care of or there's depressions that they got to take care of or they don't re- relate to people right or, or whatever. There's issues, issues, issues. And if that defines your whole relationship with God, God turns into a cosmic therapist. And your whole relationship with, one, with him is one of therapy. Now, God is a great therapist, praise God. He's the comforter. He's the counselor. He's a great counselor. And there's that dimension in our relationship with God. But your whole relationship with God shouldn't be one of just trying to get Him to fix you. He wants a relationship with you that's based on your being, not your doing. He wants a relationship with you that's based on Calvary, not on how non-screwed up you are, okay? Other people, their issues is, is, is there's some people whose, whose whole Christianity is issues with the church. This is what they always think about, issues with the church. These are the people that usually spend about one month in a church and they move on to the next church because they never find a church that's good enough. Well, and, 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 and their whole thing with God, their whole relationship, their whole Christianity is an is, is a observation about what's wrong with the church, you know, and how the church ought to be more involved in social action or less involved in social action or preaching this issue or not preaching that issue or, or whatever. Issue Christianity. For some people, their whole Christianity is, 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 is theological issues. And they're always trying to figure out their theology. They're always trying to get the parts just right. And they, 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 they sometimes establish themselves as the guardians of truth. And now they're, they spend their whole time looking at people who don't agree with them and making sure that they're out of their holy club. You know, everyone's got to cross their T's and dot their I's just like we do. And, and so it's all about issues. They're always thinking theological issues. And thank God for theology. I love theology. And thank God for church issues. I like to address church issues. And thank God He deals with personal issues. We need to deal with personal issues. But saints of God, that is not what Christianity is all about. 
That comes as a result of what Christianity is all about. What Christianity is all about at its core is about God's love for us and our love for Him. And there's got to be a time, got to be a time, as important as sleep is to your physical body, the Sabbath time of prayer is to your spiritual body. There's got to be a time where you bracket the issues, where you just hang it up for a little bit, where you call a stop to the whole thing. And you say, God, I just want to rest in your presence right now. I want to just receive what you have for me right here and right now. God didn't save you because you're going to be a great theologian. God didn't save you because you'd be a great commentator on the status of the church. God didn't save you so you could become the epitome of psychological help. Health, thank God for that. God saved you because He loves you. He died for you because He loves you. And He wants to walk with you in the cool of the day. Amen? And there, there needs to be a time where we spend time just doing that, enjoying God. A time where we just party with God where we just celebrate God, where we just kick back, where we romance God, where we say things, not like, Lord, I rebuke this demon, or Lord, help my family, or whatever. You've got to do that. But a time where you say, Lord, I love you. I love you. And you hear God say, I love you. And, and you think about what God has done for you, and you just savor that and enjoy that and, and meditate on that. The fuel of the Christian life comes out of not what you do, but times where you don't do anything other than just be who God saved you to be. His child. The recipient of His eternal, unending, uncompromising love towards you. The heart of Christianity is not a job. It's a party. Somebody say amen. The heart of Christianity, oh, there's a lot of work to do, a lot of tasks, a lot of issues, folks. Oh, yes. But the heart, the heart, the center is not a job. The heart is a party, praise God. The party of the Sabbath. The time where you just celebrate who God is and celebrate who He has made you to be. Look at the way Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. I love this stuff. The kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. It's a wedding banquet. He goes out on the highways and byways and He invites everybody. If you're willing to say yes, you're in on this. And you get there, and, and, and what happens is it's not a task, and what happens is not a job. He doesn't make you a servant. What happens is you have a party. Why? Because you came. Because you came, and the purpose for the party is, if you didn't know, to party. We're going to have a good time here. And some of the guests, I'm sure, that he invited in the highways and byways didn't look just right. They weren't dressed up just right. Maybe they came from backgrounds that were questionable. Maybe they got involved in things that were questionable. And all that can be taken care of later. But what you got to know right now is this. It is time to party. It is time to have some fun. It's time just to be who God called us to be, to enjoy what He's invited us to enjoy. The kingdom of God is like a... A person who threw a party because he found his lost sheep, this precious sheep that he had. And he went out searching for this lost sheep. Who, stupidly enough, got himself lost. Okay, the sheep was to blame. Let, let, let's grant that. But the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, goes out looking for the sheep. And when he finds this sheep, he brings the sheep home. And the Bible says in Luke 15, he, he calls his neighbors and they have an incredible party, a festival. And when... You're having the party. It doesn't matter much whether that sheep was stupid and got itself lost. It was. It doesn't matter whether that sheep has a bloody nose and, and got a broken leg when going out there and it's all muddy and dirty and maybe even filled with lice. There'll be time later on to clean up that sheep. But what matters right now is this. The sheep once was lost, but now it is found, and so it is time to party. Praise God. We in this hyper-work ethic time say well, you got to work first, play later. But in God's economy... You play first and you work later. 
And it's only because you play that you have the fuel and the energy and the motivation to work as God wants you to work. All of Christian life, all the discipline we've got to be involved with, and sometimes it's hard. All the work we've got to be involved with, and sometimes it's hard. All the sacrifices we've got to make, and sometimes it's hard. All of that has got to come out of a center of celebration. A center of celebration. We don't do it to get something we don't have. We do it because of something we already have, and that is our being in God. And that deserves a party. The kingdom of God is like a woman who was looking for a precious coin that she had lost. And she found that coin. And so she called all of her friends, and she had a party. Praise God. And it didn't much matter whether that coin was a little bit dirty and a little bit scraped and a little bit bent up. Maybe it was. There'll be time to fix it later on. But right now what matters is that that which was lost is now found, and so it's time to celebrate. And the Lord says that that's exactly what goes on in heaven when, any, when anyone comes to the Lord. He calls His angels. He gets them together, the principalities and powers and whatever. And He says, for a moment, let's just stop doing the work that we've got to do. And let's celebrate the fact that Greg Boyd once was lost, but now he's found. Praise God, I've made him pure. I've made him spotless. I've made him clean. I've made him redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is worth partying about, praise God. The kingdom of God is a party. It's a happening thing. And you need to spend time where you do that. That's why God saved you. He wants to, throughout eternity, be partying with you. He, wants to, he doesn't want to go into eternity without you. He's thankful that you're doing your ministry. If you're doing your ministry, He's got a job for you, and that's meaningful. But He didn't save you to be a good greeter or to be a good prayer warrior. Praise God if you're that. But He saved you because He wants to be with you throughout eternity. The kingdom of God is like a party that's thrown for a son who was rebellious but now has come back. And that son was full of pig manure and had degraded himself and had squandered a huge inheritance but none of that mattered right now there'll be time to address that maybe later on but right now what needs to happen is a party because the party affirms the worth of the son apart from all the doing god doesn't wait till you clean up your act before he parties over you rather he parties over you and that's what gives you the fuel to clean up your act you see how that goes the party comes first the kingdom of god is like this passionate love affair you read about in the song of songs I love this. God's not above using romantic language for our relationship with Him. He says this to His bride. It's a metaphor of Christ's relationship with the church. You're altogether lovely, He says. Turn your eyes away from me. I can't. You overwhelm me. I can't take it any longer. I don't know if you've ever been so uh, roused in love that the, the, the sheer look of your spouse just, just uh, is, you can hardly take it. Oh, you're gorgeous. You are gorgeous. Yeah. Well, God creates us and saves us to be like that. He gives us His own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The beauty of Jesus Christ is given to us, for we are in Jesus Christ. And now the Lord looks at His bride and says, Oh, you overwhelm me, praise God. You overwhelm me. You're, you're beautiful. You're lovely. Let's celebrate this time together. All doing that the bride will ever do, all the deeds the bride will ever do, and we are the bride of Christ. All of that comes out of this ecstatic rapture of a relationship that we have with Christ. But you'll never know what you're doing will swallow up your being if you don't take time to bracket the issues once in a while, to bracket the problems once in a while, and to just focus on God and let Him love you and you love Him back. The kingdom of God, he says in Hebrews 4, is like a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath rest where you just are. You just be. The doing will be there later on. Right now, you just need to bracket the issues and focus on Him and rest and be who God created you to be. When you don't do that, you find that your fuel and your motivation and your joy and your energy begins to dissipate. And Christianity turns into one big drudgery just like a bad marriage. The Bible says this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. What gives us strength? What gives us motivation? It's not the ought. It's not the should. It's the joy. You see, doing the work of the kingdom takes energy. It doesn't give energy. You've got to have a different source to get the energy, to get the strength, to do the austere work of kingdom living. It doesn't give you the joy. It doesn't give you the strength. You need to get it from somewhere else. And the Bible tells us where the source of our strength is. It's in the joy of the Lord. When I consider who God is in all of His beautiful reality, when I consider who I am and I spend time just savoring what God has made me to be throughout eternity, who God is and the glory of His being and the splendor of His loveliness, then I get joy. When I spend time just parting with God, just savoring His goodness, I get joy. When I consider His peace and the fullness of God that dwells within me, I begin to get joy. When I see His love towards me and what He's done for me on Calvary, I begin to get joy. And now I begin to get strong. Now I want to get disciplined. Now I want my life to begin to line up with His will. Now I want to do kingdom work for Him. Why? Because I am madly in love with God. And that gives me a source of strength. It gives me motivation. But you only drink of that well when you spend time savoring who He is. Letting Him savor who you are. The joy of the Lord. It's the Sabbath prayer. There needs to be a time where we pray to God not about things, but just to Him and love Him and let Him love us. Now let me end with uh, just a couple of practical, real practical uh, tips on how to do a Sabbath prayer. A lot of us are so used to just uh, relating to God on the basis of what we do or issues we're supposed to solve that we feel awkward just being in God's presence. Kind of like a married couple who are so used to raising kids and doing issues and they don't have any relationship over and above that because they've let their doing swallow up their being that when they finally go away to a cabin together they feel awkward around one another. Now what do we do? You know, uh, isn't there some job we're supposed to do? You see, you're addicted to doing. You need to have a just be together. So it is with the Lord. A couple of tips. Number one, first of all, bracket all the issues. Bracket all the issues. You may be partly screwed up. We all are. You know, the issues got church. It, the church has got issues. It always will. Uh, your theology is half-baked. All of ours are half-baked, okay? The nice thing about issues is that they're always there and they're very patient. You don't have to worry about that. They'll be there when you get done with this. For right now, take a break from it all. Hang it up. Bracket those issues. Put them on the back burner. Forget about them. And this is the time where you're just going to be in God's presence. Bracket all the issues. Number two, meditate concretely on the truths of God. Here's one way of doing it. Real practical way of doing it. When I say concretely, I mean this. The Bible says a lot about meditation. Meditate on His Word. Uh, Colossians 3 says, turn your eyes. Uh, on things above, not on things below. Uh, the difference between Christian meditation and the Eastern meditation that's kind of permeating our culture is this. In Eastern, mystic, mystical meditation, you try to vacate your mind, get it all blank. In Christian meditation, you try to fill it with truth. Major difference here. Meditate concretely on the truths of God. When I say concretely, I mean this. I mean get a picture in your mind. See it in color. Uh, make it as real as you can possibly make it. In TNT, this, this uh, course I teach with Al Larson, the whole principle is, is this, that concrete ideas move us in a way that abstractions don't. If I think about my wife in the abstract right now, I can get all the facts and statistics about her. It doesn't move me. But if I get a picture in my mind right now, I can think about it. She's just getting out of bed right now. Uh, she's waking up Nathan. They're getting ready to come to church. 
And she's doing the, you know, as I think about her concretely, I see her in color and it's vivid. You know what? I begin to miss her. They find that people who, who have a really good relationship with their spouse, they think about their spouse a lot. They think about their spouse concretely. They're moved towards them even when they're not around them. We need to think concretely about the things of God. Here's one way of doing it. You put on some nice music in the background and, and just think concretely, vividly about heaven, for example. I just enjoy thinking about heaven when this war zone is over and there's no more tears and no more death and no more sorrow. I savor that thought and it gives me joy. I can picture Jesus Christ dying on the cross for me. He says my name as he's dying his last breath. I, I picture that concretely. I meditate on that. Nice music in the background and I'm just enjoying this. I'm savoring the truth of God. Fix your eyes on things that are above. Meditate concretely on the things of God. You can do it while you're driving in the car. You just think about what God has done for you and, and, the, and the joy that He has over you. And watch how it ministers joy to your being. When we worship God together as a congregation... What we're doing is taking a Sabbath break here as a congregation. We as a congregation, our value is found not primarily in what we do, but in who we are, the being. And so we just uh, sing to the Lord. And one way to do this is to, as you're singing to the Lord, you do this on your own, do it together here, is to picture what you're singing about. Worship the Lord. And, and as there's a praise song, you just run a virtual reality movie in your head about what it is that you're singing about and watch how it impacts you. Just enjoy being in the presence of God. Saying to God how you love Him, hearing Him say to you how He loves you. And that leads to, leads to the third tip I want to give you. And that is simply this. See and hear Jesus personalize His Word to you. I love the truth that God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. That's a great truth. But you know what? What transforms me and what gives me joy is not just that truth. Not primarily that truth. I need to know that God so loved Greg Boyd He gave His only begotten Son. And it becomes concrete and it ministers to me when I can picture in my mind Jesus saying that to me because He already has said that to me. In time of prayer, a Sabbath time of prayer, you bracket the issues and spend time just seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus talk to you. Words He's already said in the Bible, you know they're true. You're not just going on the basis of your experience. You know they're true. But hear Him say it to you with your name on it. See it in His eyes. And then you just respond back. Thank you. I love you. And things of that sort. For example, hear the Lord say... And I have all these, these sayings and many more uh, teachings of the Bible on a lavender a piece of paper out on the visitor's table if you want to get some of these. These are important things to lock in and hear the Lord say to you, You are my beloved child. Greg, I've made you perfectly righteous. He, hear him with, 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 with your name attached to it. I free you from all condemnation. Oh, does that give joy. All condemnation. I have filled you with the fullness of God. Do you know that the Lord says to us, We are filled with the fullness of God? How can you not enjoy that? The Father's perfect love for me is given to you. We are loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son. It says in John 17, The Lord says to you, see Him say this, see it in His eyes. Sense His presence around you. Hear, hear Him say this to you as you're in this time of Sabbath prayer. I've made you holy and blameless, it says in Ephesians 1.4. He says, I have bought you with an infinite price and have completely forgiven you. Just enjoy that. And just respond back to Him. I love you. I thank you. Just watch the joy and the strength begin to well up in your being as the Lord says this to you. Hear Him say to you, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are my bride and you ravish my heart. 
Oh, see the Lord say this to you and just enjoy it. Just enjoy whatever else is going on in your life, however good, however bad things may be. Bracket it all and right now just hear the Lord, see the Lord, sense the Lord say to you, you ravish my heart, you are my beloved. I rejoice and sing and clap my hands over you, it says in Zephaniah 3. The Lord is just clapping his hands and singing over you. Why? Because you really turn him on. He, 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 he made you pure, he made you spotless, he made you your child, he made you his bride through the cross of Calvary. Not by what you do, but by what he did for you. And just enjoy the Lord rejoicing over you like that. It can't help but lift up your heart when you see that. I throw a party on your behalf. You are the lost sheep. You are the lost coin. You are the prodigal son. Sometimes just hear the Lord say that to you with your name on it. All of this. You just spend time hearing the Lord over and over and over again say this to you. And you say back to Him over and over again, You are beautiful. You are lovely. You are glorious. Thank you, Lord God. I am so grateful. And on and on. Because in a Sabbath prayer, the purpose isn't conveying information. So you don't have to worry about repetition. The purpose is to express your heart. Last night someone said to me, you know, there was a first time here, and they said, why do you sing that song over and over and over again? You know, don't don't people get it the first time through? And I wanted to say to him, well, you know, sir, I think you're the one who's not getting it. Uh, The purpose is we're not trying to inform God of something or inform ourselves. We're just expressing what's in our heart over and over again. I'd rather have Jesus. You know, we're just celebrating who God is. This is our party time. This is our romance time with the Lord. We're doing it as a congregation. Spend time where you just hear the Lord and speak back to the Lord the glory that is due Him. It all gets summed up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul says this, All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as through a mirror, uh, as, through, as though reflected in a mirror. Seeing the glory of the Lord. And it's really clear if you read uh, the whole passage from uh, 2 Corinthians 3 to 2 Corinthians 4, he's talking about how some have their, uh, their minds blinded. Their minds are blinded so they cannot see the glory of the Lord. But those who have said yes to the Lord, their minds have been enlightened. So now you can, in your mind, see the glory of the Lord. And Paul says, it's as you see the glory of the Lord. You see His love. You see His joy. You see His peace over you. That you now are transformed from one degree of glory to another. As I take time to rest in God's love for me, you know what? I become more transformed into His love. As I see His joy over me, I become more joyful. As I see His peace towards me, I become more peaceful. We are in the image of God. We look more and more like Him as we let Him love on us. You're transformed not by your doing, but by your being. All your doing comes out of your being. Spend time enjoying God. And the joy of the Lord will give you strength. 